Turn with me in your Bibles as you get settled in there to 1 Samuel chapter 3. We're making our way through the Old Testament, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Tonight we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 3. We'll pick up at verse 1 and put your finger there. I'll eventually get there. Now let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Heavenly Father, we always like to pause and acknowledge your, your presence here among us. Jesus said wherever two or three gather together in his name, that he would be there in the middle of it all. So with reverent hearts, we acknowledge that the Spirit of God is in this place, and thankfully it's the only way we're going to get anything out of these words. So Father, we pray that you breathe upon us in a supernatural way that we be impacted by the truth that we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are picking up where we left off here in 1 Samuel. Uh, Israel's leaving the time of the judges and entering into what's called the monarchy or the time of the kings. Now, for context, the Lord has just read the high priest Eli, the riot act, through an anonymous man of God. Essentially, the high priest Eli is getting his pink slip, as is his entire family line. Uh, his two brazen sons, who are also priests, uh, will be removed uh, for their extravagant disobedience. So corruption had uh, been allowed to get into the ministry um, and scandalize the work there of the Lord under high priest Eli's watch. It was those two, uh, as I called them, spiritual assassins that will wipe anybody out who opens their heart to them greed and sexual immorality. Uh, they had turned the Lord's house into a den of thieves or a gathering place for robbers and the Lord had had it and brought a man of God to the head honcho, uh, Eli, and said, your days are numbered, it's over. It's as good as done. So while Eli, the high priest, is a man of faith, he's a believer, he's weak and self-indulgent, and in his passivity, he becomes really an accessory to the crimes committed by his two priestly sons, whom he allows and really um, facilitates or enables to do what they do. And so a tremendous lesson, once again, um, as Eli puts off what he saw happening with the two boys, this is the, the problem the Lord has with him, that he tolerated it. He put off uh, confronting them, which would be kind of awkward and uncomfortable. Uh, but by putting it off, he made matters much worse. And that's the first lesson is, is that, you know, we think, well, I don't want to cause offense or I don't want to uh, uh, cause a problem here. And so I'm going to avoid it because I don't like conflict. And what happens is, is when you were supposed to do something about it and take care of business, you're really just making matters worse. And so that's a lesson already we see. So picking up here in chapter 3. Eli has, as I've said, has been served notice, uh, but still is present and in charge of the, of the temple area. 
the scene now turns to his replacement, who's only a boy. He's going to grow up to replace him. He's about 12 years old at the time of this text reading now. Um, it is Samuel, and, and paradoxically, it is whom Eli is actually grooming and raising up. He's raising up his own uh, replacement. So God is looking for a leader with integrity, faithfulness, and who will obey the Lord. What a concept. And he finds this in Samuel. So Eli has just heard that God's replacing him and his family with another family related to Aaron and that his two boys are going to die on the same day. Now picking up at verse 1, chapter 3. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God, the ark of the covenant, was. Then the Lord called Samuel. So we'll pause there. The first point we'll make is the Lord calls. Now, the context is given here for the awakening of Samuel to a personal relationship with the Lord. And now, the physical description of things here is an apt symbol of the spiritual condition at that time. Your opening verses, 1 through 3, you've got a high priest who's grown so weak, Eli can barely see. The lamp of God, that golden lampstand there in the holy place, was barely lit. And the word of the Lord was barely heard. And so we've got a high priest, Eli, whose spiritual sloth has dimmed his spiritual vision. And you've got sons, Hophni and Phinehas, corrupt priests who are blind as bats. And the light of God's revelation is moments from being extinguished altogether. And so it's a perfect illustration there physically of what's going on spiritually. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, where there's no vision, the people perish. Where there's no revelation or voice of the Lord, the people uh, throw off moral restraint is another version of that. In other words, we, we, we need the word of God. We need the word of God so that we can be alive. The word of God brings life to us. And uh, that life was being obscured because those who delivered the message of the Lord were corrupt themselves. So the word of the Lord wasn't getting out there. So it's a perfect scenario here. The lamp is just about to go out and uh, the, the priest is blind and uh, they're there's a great description of why Israel was in as dire straits as uh, she was. And so if the light goes out from the pulpit, people walk in darkness. Was it that the Lord didn't have anything to say? Or was it that his leaders had no desire to hear it. And so the Lord's Spirit has come into that dark place to bring light, and that is really the whole gospel message, of course. Uh, he's coming into the temple to make some changes. 
and he's going to begin by removing the people who misrepresent him with men who do the job properly. It's time for somebody to represent him who can see and hear and obey. So you'll notice in your text that Elias sprawled out in his usual place, sawing logs on lords, sawing logs, snoring someplace, uh, not in the temple area itself, because you have Samuel. He's in the temple area. He's near the ark of God, which represented the very presence or the throne of God. So it's in this text context that the Lord calls the boy Samuel. So let's read from 4 to 10. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I didn't call, go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. And again, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel get up, got up and went to Eli and said, here, here I am, you called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel a third time. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. <laughs> All right, so number one was the Lord calls. Number two, Samuel learns to listen. Now, this is a relatively simple narrative, but I really want to use it for a jumping off point to delve a little bit deeper into what it means to hear the Lord's voice. Uh, first off, it's a somber scene, uh, not really the idyllic Sunday school story that we like to think of it as, because uh, really, our picture, if it's a movie, uh, really a dark, suspense-building, eerie musical overture, not something playful as you see the boy getting up and running in and you could hear the little uh, playful music as this is a lighthearted kind of comedic little story going on here. It's not the case because this is the beginning of God putting uh, a practical spin on the judgment of Eli and his two sons. So yes, there's a new beginning and hopeful in this boy who's going to be raised up to be this Bible hero, but it also signals the death of the old regime. It's a prelude to judgment. And so, as I said, uh, God has already sent an anonymous man of God in chapter two, delivered the bad news to Eli, and now, in a great paradox and irony, we have uh, God is going to speak now a confirmation to Eli through Eli's replacement, through the one that now listen to God's poetic justice because it's on almost every page of the Bible. 
how he weaves together things and just puts his little signature on it, just so beautiful. Hannah is barren, and she's at the temple with these bunch of crazy, uh, uh, corrupt leaders, and she's found by one of them, and, and, and he prays for her to receive the blessing that she's crying out for a son. So Samuel, the one who's going to replace him in judgment, is an answer to Eli's prayers. So Eli is saying, oh, may the Lord hear your prayer and grant you that son. And boom, yeah, you know what? And here he comes back to the very temple where his replacement, the person who's going to pronounce judgment on him, is now a toddler. And, and who's going to raise this boy and nurture him in the faith and teach him the ropes and to teach him even how to hear the message that's going to rebuke him? Samuel can't even do that on his own. He needs a mentor to tell him that. And the Lord is like, just let me set this whole thing up and then sign it, Yahweh. <laughs> That's how he does things, folks. And, you know, the supernatural weaving together of the truths of the scriptures, 66 books written by 40 different God-inspired authors over a period of 1,800 years. One narrative from beginning to end. Yahweh. All right, the narrative of Samuel's calling serves several purposes for Israel to see. One, Samuel was divinely placed in the temple. This isn't man's idea. Let's not all have an election and vote for the next high priest. It's like God put this boy here. God divinely called him into service. Uh, Samuel was God's choice to replace Eli. Samuel now will be shown to have the ability to hear from the Lord and then have the courage to deliver. Therefore, Israel can see by reading this narrative, he is the one that we can trust to lead us. And so let's examine the call itself. Samuel is a young teen. Bible scholars say he's, he's 12 or younger. Um, he's a good boy, but he didn't yet, verse 7 tells you, he didn't really experience God in a personal way yet. He hadn't heard that still small voice in, in our hearts that makes us know, hey, wow, we're, we're connected to the living God in a personal way. And by the way, it's not knowing about God and being raised in the temple that will save him. It's knowing God personally. And in our, uh, in our situation, through Jesus Christ, his son, and that's the whole intent of the gospel. And so what's intriguing and insightful is this idea that God speaks to us and we can hear it and understand it and respond. So let's talk about that. In verse 4, Samuel awakens in the pre-dawn hours and he hears his name. And look at what a good kid this boy is. He thinks Samuel's calling. Samuel's old and decrepit, and he can barely see. And so he, you know, he's feeling like, Eli needs me. And, and what does your verse say? It says he runs to him. And he says, what does he say? He doesn't whine to him. He says, hey, it's 3.30 in the morning, Eli. What do you need? 
he runs and he says, here I am at your service. What do you need? And he says, it's not me, kid. Go back to bed. So verse 6 says, it happens again a second time. Samuel. And the boy returns and says, uh, Mr. Eli, here I am again. You must have changed your mind. And, and Eli startled awake again, and he's not very pleased, I don't think. And he says, son, listen, I didn't call you. The only thing I want is some shut-eye. Now run along and go back to bed. And then the Lord calls him again. Now, let's talk about the Lord's call. Now, first of all, we, we can learn something right here. David Guzik wrote this. And yet the Lord calls again. Hmm. When speaking to us, God almost always confirms his word again and again. It is generally wrong to do something dramatic in response to a single inner voice from the Lord. If God is speaking... He will confirm, and often in a variety of ways. If it's a significant matter, it is wise to let God confirm his word to us. And so, uh, how does God speak to us? Well, that's a pretty deep subject. Um, I, I think it'd be easier to say how doesn't he speak to us? Because for me, it seems like as a Christian, all day long, I'm having this running dialogue with the Lord, that there's this inner uh, commentary as my day unfolds. I have reactions and responses, and I kind of feel uh, a direction from him, pushing back and, and showing and opening understanding and, and swaying how I feel. And, and I can feel him interacting, especially when I've got the radar on and I'm looking for his voice in his hand. But how God speaks to us is, you know, how do you describe? I started thinking about this. How do I describe to you what we all know, the voice of the Lord in our own hearts, and it's something that none of us can explain? So how do I talk to you about it? Well, I'm going to try. Uh, first of all, I think it's a quiet, subtle realization, a knowing. Um, it's when all the dots connect and you don't even know why. How did I know that? I'll be talking to somebody in counseling, and they didn't even get to the part where uh, I'm already there. I get the whole thing. I see it. It's just not all the time like that. But when that happens, I'm like, wow, you're, you're showing me something, God, that I couldn't have known myself. Or... It's what I call spiritual reverb. Now, reverb is that echo quality. You know, if you've ever heard it, uh, I just picture this is kind of goofy, but like there's a gong in my head and, and the Holy Spirit will take a mallet and hit it really hard and the whole thing goes like this. And I get it. I just, it's a heavy weighted uh, thing that just returns and echoes over and over. And in fact, that is how I first became a Christian 
in, I told you this many times, I was in a bar and I, and I got malleted and all I could hear was this voice in my head, not audible, but that thought in my head that, and I've told you what it was, why will you go to hell when you don't have to? Over and over again until I felt like I was losing my mind, I had to leave the bar with my brother. And outside the bar, I bowed my head with my brother and became a born-again Christian because of the wah thing. I mean, I've never heard that kind of thing before, but I knew that this was a voice to be reckoned with. And uh, so I made peace with it instead of fighting it. But you know, it's, we also call it uh, a, a quickening. It's where suddenly you're suddenly alert. It's kind of a holy anxiety, if you will. And I was talking, and, and of course, uh, Jay, who leads us in worship, came into my office, sat down. We, had a, we were talking about their trip down south. And he started talking about how he hears God. How, how to hear God, and I'm like, I'm working on this right here, and I'm not, I'm not even telling him that. And he said, you know what, um, you know, speaking of this subject, you know the time the church van, uh, not the van, but the trailer was robbed. You, you remember somebody actually hooked it up and took it away with thousands of dollars of stuff in it. We got it back the next day, in, in case you didn't hear that Sunday. Uh, but... Jay was here late at night by himself praying. And suddenly he said, I've just felt uh, anxious and in danger. And I went out in the parking lot and I stood there and went, this is parking lot. This is stupid. What am I doing? Why I'm all by myself here. And so he left. Two hours later, they pull in and they take the, the church trailer. There was a shotgun in the truck when they found the trailer. Jay said, I know how I am. I would have walked out there and I would have said, hey, what are you guys doing? I'm calling the cops. <laughs> God says to him, Jay, danger. <laughs> but the funny part about it is he's out in the parking lot talking to himself. What, what, what's going on? He's trying to figure out what's going on, but the Holy Spirit is saying, over a mallet, over his gong. Hey, you got to do something, kid. And he did something. Um, it's the clear voice of our conscience when your conscience goes, uh, no. Yeah, that's pretty clear. Or it's the way providence just unfolds and it's a no-brainer. Just the way something happens, a divine appointment's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I get it. I mean, that, that happened to Philip in Acts chapter 8. He just, the Lord's Spirit takes him somewhere. He's on a kind of a barren road out there in the middle of nowhere, and a chariot pulls up, and the guy's reading Isaiah 53. <laughs> Duh! No, Lord, you're speaking to me. He didn't say, now what, Lord? He walks up and he says, hey, what are you reading? He says, hey, uh, Isaiah 53. He says, do you understand what you're reading? He goes, no, I wish somebody could explain it to me. And he goes, oh, well, that was why I'm here. You see, so God speaks to us through the way our lives unfold. And so that inner voice, thoughts and feelings. But it's an uncertain business, is it not? 
Uh, here's what one writer said. You know, we do have 50 to 70,000 thoughts a day. Which of those are his? Which of those are our own agenda, my own bias, my own uh, desires? Which of them are demonically inspired? We have an enemy out there. It's not all about God necessarily. There's a lot of voices out there. Which of those 70,000 thoughts belong to the Lord? Here's what one writer says. Because it is uncertain, there are three things to keep in mind. First, we must always judge what we think God may be telling us by what he has certainly told us in his word, the Bible. God will never contradict his eternal word. Second, we should always be humble when it comes to the idea of God speaking to us. We can never completely trust our ability to hear from God by this inner voice accurately. It is easy for us to add something to what God has said or to stop listening or to misapply what he has said or to think that it was God when actually it was ourselves or something else. It is far better to say and think, I think the Lord told me, or it seems the Lord may be impressing me, than to talk and think as if you hear God perfectly. Finally, no one should feel unspiritual because they think God does not speak to them the way he seems to speak to others. If you really want God to speak to you and to speak to you the best way, then get into his word, the Bible. We know he has spoken there. So I really like that. Um, what I do see here, though, wise counsel from Eli. Eli tells Samuel to get in the posture to facilitate a hearing correctly from God. What's the posture? Number one, he says, make yourself available, kid. Go back to where he's talking to you. Go back. Go, go. Make yourself available. Put yourself back there. That's where he seems to be the talk, doing the talking. And we know where God seems to do a lot of his talking, don't we? There's worship, there's prayer, there's Bible studies, there's church, there's other Christian friends, there's godly counsel. There's a lot of place, places of posture. Number two, he tells Samuel not to be presumptuous about God speaking. He says, go back and if he calls you, I love that part. Let's see, go back in bed and say, hey, God, here I am. I missed you. I got all messed up, messed up. I thought it was Eli. I'm straight now. Go ahead, speak. No, you go back there. You lay down and you wait for him to talk to you. I like that. Number three, he tells Samuel to humble himself before God. This is one of my favorite parts. He says, say your servant hears. Speak, Lord. If he talks to you, in other words, Lord, whatever you're about to say, it's yes and amen. I'll do it before you even ask me. And that encourages God to speak. How attractive is it to speak to somebody who doesn't value what you have to say? Over and over again, they don't care what you have to say. They never listen and they don't do it. How appealing is it as a human being 
to want to say, hey, by the way, I know it's been three years since you valued anything I had to say, but, you know, let's chat again. <laughs> Just saying. So in our daily comings and goings, the God who made us knows exactly how to get through to us. If we're listening, put yourself in listening posture and say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. So Samuel settles into correct posture. He waits. Sure enough, the prompt comes. Samuel says the magic word, speak, Lord, I'm all yours, and God speaks. Let's finish the chapter, and we'll be done. 10 through 21, the Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other time, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, see, Look, Samuel, boy, I'm about to do something in Israel that's going to make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, for I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay back down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son, Samuel answered, here I am. <laughs> what was it he said to you, Eli asked? Don't hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he's the Lord. Let him do what is good in his, in his eyes. And the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Now, let's talk a little bit about this, and then we'll be done. How'd you like that for your first encounter with the Lord. Now, so number one was the Lord calls. Number two, Samuel learns to listen. And now number three, Samuel gets an earful. Uh, in verses 11 through 14, quite a weighty message to give to a boy, perhaps as one of these poetic justice moments. Listen, the adults... You're all busy doing something else. Nobody's listening to me. All you uh, leaders of maturity. So you know what? I'm going to turn this place upside down, and you know who I'm going to use? I'm going to use a sixth grader. That's how old he was. If I can't find who I'm looking for, I'd, I can use a boy. This boy can be used. He's already been serving me. I've spoken to him. I will use a boy. Isaiah chapter 3 verse 4 says this. I will make boys their officials, 
mere children will govern them. Psalm 8, verse 2. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. So they're singing Hosanna at the triumphal entry called Palm Sunday. And the kids are in the temple singing Hosanna and praising Jesus and, and, and calling him the Messiah. And uh, the Pharisees say, teacher. Do you realize what these kids are saying? They're singing songs and proclaiming you to be the son of God, the Messiah. And Jesus says, have you guys read Psalm 8 verse 2? Where it says that the Lord has ordained praise through the mouth of children in front of his enemies to silence them. And so through the kids in the temple on that Palm Sunday day, the Lord is saying, these kids get it. The kids know I'm the Messiah. You wise, mature, learned, learned adults, well, you don't get it. Don't underestimate the Lord's ability to use and value children. He said, didn't he? Where was it? In Matthew 18 and verse 3. Uh, the disciples are saying, keep the kids away. This is the Messiah for crying out loud. They're crawling all over him. And Jesus said, I'm going to rebuke you now because I want those kids to crawl over me. And he said, and if you don't become like a kid who's crawling all over me in trust and in love and acceptance, you'll never see heaven. Don't underestimate what God is doing in the lives of a little kid. When Pastor Josh talks about children's ministry, often he cries. He's the right man for that job. When Pastor Josh asks me for anything budget-wise for the children's ministry, which we just spent thousands of dollars remodeling, he gets it. His budget is the biggest budget of all the budgets. And he's spoiled rotten, and he knows it. And everybody kind of hears, oh, well, we're not children's ministry. You see, he gets what he asked for, nine times out of 10. Because we get it. We get what God says. They're important to me. They're not just kids. You put over there and put them in daycare. They're important. They can know him. And what happens in their hearts when they're six, seven, eight, and even younger, it'll stay with them the rest of their lives. So let's look at the actual message because it's kind of harsh and hardcore. Verse 11, God tells Samuel, listen, I got something spectacular planned. And whenever you hear tingling ears in the Bible, uh, in 2 Kings 21 and Jeremiah 19, it always reeks of judgment. In other words, he's saying, listen, uh, I got something in store that's going to make some head spin. So that's our idiom to understand that. And here's the message from 12 through 14. He says, I am so done with this side show with those men doing their deeds. And I see this as an encouragement to the 12-year-old boy who lives in the same tent. 
where Hophni and Phineas are seducing the children's ministry worker volunteers, as we read in chapter 2. It's under the same tent. There are no hard walls. He knows everything. He knows everything about Eli. He knows everything about those two wicked boys. He sees the, the pronged fork coming down in the comments. Oh, look, we're taking the big fat offering. And he watches Eli and all the corruption. And little Samuel's heart is like leaping for joy. There is a God in heaven. Thank you. Thank you for saying that you're done with this and you're going to make a difference in, these, uh, in this place. That God cannot be mocked for what a man sows, a man will reap. If you sow to the flesh, the sinful nature, from that nature you will reap destruction. And there, it's time to, to reap. And the boy's not blown out of the water. The boy's like, yes. Down deep, I'm sure he's freaked out. Now the Lord is by his side. Whenever you see a body, it's Jesus Christ. The Father is a spirit. He is spirit. We worship him in spirit and truth, John chapter 4. The physical, corporal manifestation of God is in God the Son. So when you hear he stood by his bed, it is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ who says, Samuel, i got to talk to you about this guy and Hophni and Phinehas. And I told them and I have warned them. And now I need you to tell him it's all going to come to pass. It's a big deal. Eli's guilty. Let it go on. They're out of a job, kid. The whole lot of them. They forfeit the honor because they dishonored me. And now the disconcerting words of verse 14, in case you're, you're bothered by them, as I was at first read. He says, and by the way, Sam, no offering is going to fix this. He's saying, no, uh, Samuel in his young heart. Well, Lord, let's just go find a big fat bull and we'll bring it in and we'll clean this thing up and offer a sacrifice. He says, no, kid, no. Yes, if they would only repent, we could do that, and they would be restored to me personally, but they're not getting their jobs back. Because sometimes when you sin, the consequences are not fixable. You can always be restored to the Lord 100% of the time. While you're breathing, you cry out in real repentance and confession, boom. The Bible says you confess your sins. I'm faithful and just. I'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But you know, he says, in this case, kid, you know what? It's not about offering a quick prayer of confession and bringing in some bull. It's over. We're not fixing this. He's not being restored. That's what that verse means. You never hear Eli cry out in repentance. Not the first time the man of God comes, and not at the end of this chapter. Where is he going to say even to uh, Samuel, after Samuel gets up the courage to deliver the bad news second time, is God waiting? Are you going to do anything, Eli? Are you just going to say, the Lord is God. Let him do what he's going to do, whatever. Oh, why don't you fall on your face? Why don't you go wake up your two boys and kick them out of the temple and say, God, I know it's a little late. 
But this second time through this little boy just crushed my heart. And I, I'm going to go find those two scoundrels and kick them out. Throw them out of the tabernacle. And please forgive me for being so tolerant of wickedness and corruption. You don't see any of that. Isn't that one of the reasons why God is, is letting Samuel bring a second time of confirmation going, you going to do anything? No, he says, well, God's going to do what he's going to do, whatever. Oh, man. And that, that's not really cool. And so what happens here is morning dawns, you know, verse 15, Samuel's a little late getting things up and going. You know, he's been tingling with his ears, uh, laying there. He's not sleeping. It says he does not sleep. Uh, you know, I think it's kind of like uh, Samuel got seven Red Bulls, you know, with that information. And he's laying there going, oh. And so morning comes and he opens the doors. Apparently that was his job to do in the morning. And then finally... Eli figures out he's up. And now he's like, Samuel, come here, come for breakfast. And so he says, uh, here I am, gulp. And then Eli's almost blind, of course, but he's not that dumb. He can figure out Samuel isn't himself. And so he corners him at breakfast and he says, in my paraphrase, okay, okay son, what did he say to you last night? Don't even think about not telling me. Or I'll be asking God to come down here and blast you real good if you leave out one word. So Samuel swallows hard and spills the beans, every last one of them. And Eli's response, you know what? He's God. Let the Lord do as he sees fit. So you know what? I really like Samuel. I really like that kid. What a hard thing to do. To look at your mentor and say, God told me to tell you, you're fired. You are so fired. And your boys are so fired, too. And, and, and it's probably going to be me who's got your job. <laughs> you know, but praise the Lord, pass the bacon. Whoa, not the bacon. <laughs> not the bacon. Pass the tofuti. Or the, yeah. Pass the, what did they eat for breakfast? Yogurt, the goat's milk. It had something to do with goats, I'm sure. Pass the lamb kebabs. Yeah, so he delivers. You know, isn't it, don't we need to be like him? We need to be like him. God gives the gospel to you, and he says, speak, tell them. The good, the bad, the ugly. It's hard. We have to gulp. And when people say, you know, I'm basically a good person, we have to say, basically, you're not. And, and you're a sinner, and your, your good works don't amount to much. Your best efforts at morality is like a pile of dirty laundry, the Bible says. Uh, no, sexually immoral people can't go to heaven. Well, what if I was born th that way? Well, it doesn't matter how you're born the first time since prerequisite to heaven is that you're born a second time. What do you mean Jesus is the only way? What about all the sincere religions in the world? False. 
False. What about my grandma? She's really sweet and kind. She doesn't buy a thing about Jesus, but she's sweet and kind. Lost. You tell the whole story, folks, or you don't have the gospel. You don't say, you know, uh, Eli, what the Lord said was, oh, you've got a few days to get it right, and if you do, everything will be fine. No, he had the gumption to say, here's how it is. And we've got to be like that. Listen to what Paul said in Acts 20. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Acts 20, verse 26. So can contemporary Christians say the same thing? If not, you risk being guilty of the lives of others. Uh, listen, I'd rather be true to God's word and cause a little offense to somebody and in the end help them with the truth than to say any, only things that people want to hear. So it closes on a happy note, verses 19 through 21, how the Lord is with uh, Samuel uh, as he is with us. You know, I, I read this and I was jealous of Samuel. And I was feeling like, wow, I wish I was as good and as lovable as this golden boy. How could you not love a kid like everything we've read about the kid? Just, oh, you know, he's cute on the outside and cute with his little robe that Hannah made him. And, and he's opening the doors and lighting the fires and running around praising the Lord while these bozos are running around and the light is just shining on him the music is always angelic around him I, I could see why God loves him and I read this great comment about God being with us because we're in Christ listen to this our hearts are so prone to unbelief and sin so it's with great difficulty we receive the truth that the Lord is with us that God is for us how can this be? We think we fail him, but he's for us. We're ignorant, but he's for us. We don't produce as much fruit as we should, yet he's for us. God is not for us because we're so good, but because of who we are in Christ, God is for you and with you, even if you're not as good as Samuel, because God's given to you the goodness of Jesus. That's from William Newell's commentary on Romans chapter 8. And so the final verse there is just saying, I love this. He says, God doesn't let Samuel's words fall to the ground, meaning that now he is the last judge and he's the first prophet of the Old Testament. So he's going to start to say, thus saith the Lord, and the Holy Spirit's going to fill him with words of wisdom and knowledge. And he's going to speak out, and all the words that he speaks out are going to hit the bullseye. That's what that verse means. It's just that God is with this guy and is going to establish him as the first prophet in Israel's history. What did God speak to you through this chapter? Because he did. He was talking. Whether you recognize that was God, I mean, you were interacting, you were thinking what you liked, what you didn't like, what you agreed with, 
all your things you were thinking, he was there guiding. He was underlining things. He was going, did you get that one? Did you get that? That was for you? Yeah, yeah. And here's what I feel like he said to me. Three things, four things. One, don't ever want to be like weak and compromised Eli. Got to keep my zeal burning bright. Number two, remember to not avoid dealing with matters that may be awkward or uncomfortable, especially confronting people. To put it off is to make it worse and cause greater harm. Number three, the more I put myself in postures to hear him, the more I will. And number four, I want to have a willing, obedient heart that encourages God to speak to me and use me because he knows that when I hear, I'll actually carry it out. To say, here I am, I'm all yours, I'm all yours, speak to me, I'm listening, and I'll carry it out fully. Let's pray. Thank you, Father God, for Samuel the boy who offers us such an example to follow as well as Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, though their examples are negative. But we learn vicariously through them and all the characters in scripture, the words of life tonight speak to our hearts as we place ourselves in obedient postures before you to hear your still small voice that brings life. In Jesus' name, amen.